And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host for this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the show where we look at manufacturing with both a telescope and a microscope. We look at the big economic headlines. We look at the big political headlines. They matter a great deal to manufacturing performance in the United States and around the world. But at this time of great transformational change, we have to go deeper. And the key word here is new. New technology, new markets, new geopolitical arrangements, new economic thinking. And we're going to be here to tell our listeners how that adds up to a new day in U.S. and global manufacturing. We have the best guests, the best experts in their field. And today is no exception. We've been looking at the economics of manufacturing. We've been looking at the economics of manufacturing sectors. But for the first time, we're going to look at the balance sheet. And let me tell you, it is hard to find an economist who can talk with expertise and nuance about financial indicators. Well, we certainly have one today in Michael Ryan. He is Global Industry Economist and Associate Director at IHS Market, based in Washington, D.C. He has an extensive track record working with global manufacturers of all sizes and across the broader supply chain in the development of international investment frameworks, market entry strategies, comprehensive risk assessments, and business unit forecasts. Michael manages the company's sector risk module that is effectively an early warning radar to help their clients monitor and mitigate credit risk exposure. It's a cutting-edge approach in using big data to spot business cycle turning points based on changes in economic and financial fundamentals designed to outperform independent credit benchmarks like corporate bankruptcies, yield spreads, and credit default swaps. Prior to joining IHS Market, Mike started his career with Price Waterhouse Cooper's advisory, supporting federal stabilization programs at the onset of the financial crisis, a remarkably challenging way to start a prodigious career. Mike holds a BBA in finance from James Madison University, United States, and he received his Master of Science with distinction in banking and international finance from the University of London's Cass Business School in the UK. He is a Japanese Kakahashi scholar and served as the 2018 president of the National Economist Club, representing over 500 leading professionals in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, Cliff. How are you? Glad to be here. You are constantly thinking about financial indicators, financial metrics, and you, you've done some recent research on the broad U.S. corporate debt bubble. Can you help our listeners to understand your basic findings? Yeah, that's right, Cliff. So I just authored a pretty extensive piece of research looking at the U.S. corporate debt, uh, corporate debt market and leveraged lending markets. And, you know, my genesis for the research is, is essentially the fact that 
there's a lot of uh, media punditry out there looking at exceptional levels of uh, credit to GDP levels that are now reaching kind of a pre-crisis levels. And so I, I am basically taking an approach where I'm using some of our proprietary analytics here at IHS market to deconstruct the balance sheet health of the U.S. corporate sector and really hone in on these key risk areas. Um, but I, I think just to kind of lead off here, I think kind of the primary argument uh, that you'll find in media outlets is the fact that, once again, so corporate GDP, uh, corporate credit to GDP is pretty much at pre-crisis levels. Um, you also see that the share of investment grade debt has gone from uh, floating at just above junk status, has gone from about one-third pre-crisis up to about half today. So that's at a triple B rating. And then also the leveraged loan market has gone through a huge transformation as well. Um, so prior to the financial crisis, about 25% of leveraged loans were, uh, were covenant light, i.e. they didn't have investor protections. And then now that share is up to 80% today. And thus that there's, there's this kind of thesis out there that uh, good money is just being thrown after bad projects in the, in, the, you know, in the sense that people are just chasing yield. So we've gone through this, you know, this kind of exceptional monetary easing uh, environment. And thus, you know, is there some sort of buildup in risk out there, right, where we're just kind of in people have to hit investor returns, but are they maybe building up risk over the long term? Now, let, let me kind of counter this last point, right, in terms of the leveraged loan market. Uh, I think certainly that's a reason to be worried, right, with this kind of rise of cov light provisions. But I would also counter that there are certain qualitative factors, that financial markets have evolved. And, and what I mean by that is, uh, let me take a step back in the sense that most people are generally familiar with exchange-traded funds, ETFs. So in terms of like your 401k, for example, a lot of people have moved money out of, say, mutual funds into ETFs because they're lower management fees. They passively track the market. Now, fixed income markets are a little, a few years behind, right? So you're now starting to see more exchange-traded fixed income. And IHS market is kind of leading the way over here with our iBox product. And so essentially we can start creating pools, right? If you're interested in, say, German utilities, you know, there would be some sort of fixed income index for that. If you were interested in U.S. tech, you know, you could find a fixed income uh, investment index for that, right? So in order to create these indices, you have to strip out the covenant provisions to make them easier to trade. Now, there's the argument that the risk doesn't disappear, but the counterargument to that is that you're creating more liquidity in the market, and thus whoever can bear the risk and who's willing to bear it uh, can do so and also earn a higher rate of return at the same time. So that's kind of the thesis there. Now, with regards to kind of this level of gearing in the market going up, um, I would counter that interest rates are lower than at uh, pre-crisis -cri pre levels and, and I should say uh, prior recession events, right? So as long as interest rates are lower, uh, therefore we can tolerate a higher level of debt relative to income. So therefore interest payments are more or less kind of the same. And we, we certainly see that not only in the non-financial sector, but in manufacturing as well. Um, so that, that's kind of one argument. And then also uh, debt coverage ratios also look pretty sound. So I'm happy just to, I guess, uh, elaborate on the methodology about how I compiled this research piece. And essentially what we do at IHS Market is we look at all globally public, publicly traded companies, right? So of which there's probably like 30 to 40,000 or so. 
And what we do is we tag them by their home country of operation and then by their primary sector that they operate in. And therefore, we're able to create kind of once we create these groupings, we will then take their balance sheets uh, collectively across all these companies and then add up the balance sheet line items. So total assets, total equity, total sales, right, so on and so forth. And there we're able to create traditional credit risk ratios. So we're able to look at an industry's level of leverage. We can look at its liquidity profile, and we can look at its working capital in the sense of its, its financial efficiency. Um, and, and thus, you know, we can create a real true composite balance sheet image uh, across the broader supply chain, not only in the United States, but globally as well. So we can compare uh, it, it is interesting, I think we'll get into this later in the call, how do U.S. manufacturers fare versus the international competition? So how does the balance sheet profile impact the level of competitiveness? You know, that's a whole research topic in and of itself, um, which is why I'm really excited to be on the call today. Mike, interesting, interesting results here. Now, our listeners are going to want to know, how does the U.S. manufacturing sector as a whole and I know it's a broad sweep here compared to non-manufacturing, generally speaking, in terms of what you would think of as balance sheet stability. Great question. And what we generally find is that manufacturing is actually safer than the non-manufacturing, or I should say the broader non-financial industry. And I think we can characterize that by several facets, right? So we can see that manufacturing has got lower levels of gearing, it's got better debt coverage, um, albeit it's a little bit more reliant on short-term financing, so a little bit more refinancing risk. But all things considered, it's, it's a lot, the gearing level is much smaller than in the non-financial sector. So I think, you know, it, therefore, it's got more capacity. If we were to enter into more of an economic downturn, I think manufacturing is better poised than perhaps other, other areas of the U.S. economy. Um, and there's some other interesting uh, research here that I'd like to point out. So I think if, if we go back to the financial crisis, um, you know, there's this kind of rippling of, of bankruptcies, and then you see this kind of consolidation of balance sheets, uh, and, and, you know, there's, there's this more conservative operation in those years immediately following the financial crisis, right? So things actually get a, a lot safer. And right around 2014, I find that there's this kind of breakout in terms of there's a lot more leverage in terms of manufacturing balance sheets. Um, so I thought that was interesting. So from 2014 to 2016 was this kind of deterioration in, in the kind of the balance sheet fundamentals of U.S. manufacturers. And so what I did is I cross-referenced that versus the economic fundamentals. So we've also got a database where I can look at manufacturing revenues and capital investment. And what we find is that in the period 2014 to 2016 was a pretty weak period for those, um, those economic fundamentals that coincide with this, this kind of uh, balance sheet deterioration. So that was very interesting to me. So 2010 to 2013, hey, you know, the, in, the, the you know, economic fundamentals look great. Sales, investment, everything was great. 2014 to 2016, Poor, the balance sheet deteriorates. We haven't really seen the balance sheet change too much since 2016, so it's been more or less kind of static since then, um, albeit there's some, some changes at kind of the sub-industry level. Uh, once again, I'm kind of speaking manufacturing in aggregate. 
But one hypothesis could be is that if if uh, if kind of executives could not meet uh, their their targets, right? Maybe that there is more of a incentive to do some sort of financial engineering in terms of share buybacks or something, um, if in order to create shareholder value. And um, it, it's hard to to really say. You know, I don't want to say that's a defining reason, but it would certainly be be an area of further research. Huh. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I asked you for the distinction between manufacturing and non-manufacturing, and it, it was very interesting and perhaps even a little surprising to hear your, your um, analysis. Let, let's put them together again just for a second and, and look at, talk about U.S. corporate balance sheets. There are rising concerns about a recession in the U.S. and around the world. So I have to ask you the, um, the somewhat obvious question. How prepared are U.S. corporate balance sheets in the aggregate in the event of uh, the uh, the feared recession? Right. So I, I think that's a great question, and I, I think that they're more than adequately compared. So I, I'm not seeing a level of systemic risk. I, I do see risk at the sub-industry level, um, particularly amongst uh, certain borrowers. Maybe you could say that there's risk in kind of the, where there's been more serial acquisitions, particularly in spaces with more technological disruption, um, changing business models. So I think you could certainly see pockets of risk there. But if you look at the balance sheet of the U.S. non-financial sector writ large, um, you know the, the level of gearing is certainly close to those pre-recession events, but your debt coverage ratio. So if we look at, say, net debt to EBITDA, for example, that's a very popular uh, debt coverage ratio. You basically want to see that at two or lower. Um, if you got up closer to four, that's you've, you've got a very difficult time using cash flow to meet your debt obligations. And right now, the U.S. non-financial sector is just hovering just above two. Um, the manufacturing industry is just below two. And, and thus, that if you kind of look at things, and, and it could be kind of a benefit of diversification, right, if you're, if you're looking at this kind of in, in aggregate. But as a whole, the market looks sound. The other thing that I'll say about kind of relating, say, non-manufacturing uh, industries or manufacturing, or at least kind of corporate sector writ large, you know, the corporate sector has never really been a driver of recessionary events, at least in kind of recent memory. So, you know, we could go back to savings and loan crisis. We can go to the dot-com bubble. Um, we can go to um, you know, the, the real estate bust in 2008. Um, but, but it hasn't really been the corporate sector, you know, at, at large, so to speak, as being a, a primary driver. Um, I, I'm actually more worried about a lot of emerging markets and then even in Western Europe as well. Well, I want to I want to push that a little bit because the path of such variables as leverage and net debt as a percent of total sales is cycle sensitive. Now, I know in your research you found that in 2018, net debt as a percent of total sales in the the non-financial corporate sector was 32%. Let me ask, keeping on the cycle theme, how does that compare to pre-Great Recession levels. I'm asking, why shouldn't we be worried about that 32%? That's a fair argument, right? Because, um, you know, sales can trend off if, if there's kind of a downturn in the economy, and then your debt situation would remain the same. 
right? So that, that's a fair argument, Cliff. But, and, and you can also point out the fact that you can look at prior recessionary events. So if we go back to 1990, 1991, it was also at that 32 to 34% was a critical threshold. Uh, 2001, net debt to sales was also 32%, right? So you kind of see this over time of, of, you know, is there a critical threshold? You know, th there's an argument to that. However, I would say that interest rates are lower than they've been in prior recessionary events. And also the Fed does have a buffer to continue dropping the short end of the spectrum if they want. But if we, if we for, if for a moment, focus on the 10-year Treasury yield. Um, so 10-year Treasury bonds, um, and I specifically point this out because it's a common benchmark in terms of then adding risk premia to set kind of a corporate debt um, you know, cost structure. So it's a fair benchmark of, in terms of the cost of lending. But if you go back to the 1990 recession, yeah, a 10-year Treasury bond was yielding about 8.5%. Um, if you go back to the 2000, 2001 recession, you know, it's about 5 to 6% uh, was the 10-year Treasury. And then in the 2008 recession, it was about 45 to 5 So now it's floating just above 2 And and so my argument, once again, is that you, as long as you can keep those interest expenses uh, constant relative to your income, and right now interest expenses are holding steady, um, and the debt is also long-term, right, um, and thus that there's not this refinancing risk, therefore, you know, it's not as risky as what it would seem. Because right now, if we specifically get to refinancing risk, this is really key, right? And and I think this is kind of lost on a lot of uh, uh, research. We've never had the corporate balance sheets have never been so locked into long-term cheap financing before. Uh, you know, the Fed started to raise interest rates back in the end of 2015, and at that point, from 2016 onwards, every or at least even before that, right? People wanted to get ahead of this Fed tightening curve, and everyone's been taking out long-term cheap debt for as long as they can. And right now what we find is that for at least the non-financial sector, about 85% of financing is long-term. Um, it's pretty similar to the manufacturing industry. It's only a few points lower than that. Uh, so, so they're locked in. That means only 15% of their debt is going to, you know, to, to come up for renewal within the next year. And so that, that's really not a lot. Um, you know, all things considered. It, but, but just for context, if you go back to kind of the, the 1990, early 1990s recession, about one-third of debt was um, short-term, and, you know, it, it's, you know, it's gone down ever since then. So there, there's this secular shift to using long-term financing. I know that our listening audience is worried about the economy, trade tensions, global weakness, and their concern about the economy has certainly escalated in recent months. So I'm going to push it even further. I'm going to ask you, could you briefly catalog industries that may encounter financial difficulty if, indeed, we do have the feared recession? Yeah, so there's, there's a few that I've cataloged here. Um, Specifically, I wanted to answer your question with regards to how uh, a trade conflict uh, could impact this, right? I mean, would you see higher levels of import inflation, thus that it would kind of alter the cost structure of profitability and cash flow of industries and their ability to meet their debt payments? 
I think that's a huge research piece that you know probably goes beyond the scope of today's call, um, but it is something that I'm kind of you know dipping my toes into and starting to research. However, I would say that at, you know if you look specifically at kind of the Chinese yuan, you know the Chinese devalued by 10% as soon as we put 10% tariffs on, and thus we haven't seen this import cost inflation. But since then, there's been announcements to progressively, you know, increase the, the cost of our tariffs. And if that starts to, you know, outpace the, you know, say Chinese devaluation, then yeah, we could certainly see some import cost inflation, and then, um, you know, th that could probably have some some consequences for sure. Um, th that's a really big question, though. Um, let me kind of zoom out by just kind of cataloging. The, the areas of manufacturing where I do see high levels of gearing. Uh, so this may be kind of a good way just to kind of frame a kind of a, a general piece as to where there's risk building up within the manufacturing industry. Now, bear in mind, I'm only looking at assets to equity here. I'm not looking at debt coverage ratios, but it, it's still helpful nevertheless in terms of just framing where there's potential risk vectors within manufacturing. So and this is in no particular order, but um, you know, fertilizers and ag chemicals, very high levels of gearing, um, and it's also weaker economic fundamentals uh, at the moment, right? So it's it gets back to this kind of trade conflict that we've been talking about, uh, but but it's also the fact that poor growing conditions, and so I think there's some risk there um, to to look at. Also, um, paper products. You know, we've seen this decline in printing in favor of digitization, but there's exceptionally high levels of gearing in terms of the paper industry. But interestingly enough is that we don't see the same level of financial stress amongst lumber providers. So you see this discrepancy between the lumber industry and paper products. Well, I guess, you know, lumber is also exposed to construction in a number of other areas versus paper is maybe, you know, more geared around you know, uh, you know, kind of the printing industry or, or kind of office and commercial, right? Uh, so that's kind of interesting. The beverage market has also got exceptionally high levels of leverage, and there's been a lot of consolidation in this space because there's been companies who are trying to get more economies of scale in terms of market distribution. Um, and so they're, they're, you know, the rationale is that it's more of a non-discretionary space, and once they do get this kind of consolidation, then they can get price hikes, and therefore they can tolerate this level of debt. Um, we do see the beverage industry is, is kind of financially healing a bit, so it does seem that the strategy is paying off, but, you know, th they certainly rank high for, uh, for gearing. And that's yeah. right. So I also see computers and peripheral equipment. There's been some uh, a lot of private equity deals in this space and some privatization as well. It's an industry that's characterized by very high fixed costs, and it's also a very uh, fast innovation market. So if you can't keep up with that pace of innovation, then you know in order to to fund a lot of this these kind of fixed investments, um, you know that that kind of results in uh, potentially a dangerous cash flow situation. Then you've also got industrial conglomerates. Um, there is certainly that was flagged red in our analysis, um, aerospace and defense sector, and then lastly, auto manufacturers and associated retail, which I think we'll, we'll get into in just a bit. You know, it's interesting. I know your research has identified, and it, 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 this, this raised an eyebrow with me, 
has identified concerns with the balance sheet in auto manufacturing. Now, we, we had a, a very good auto analyst on a number of months ago. And when I think about auto manufacturing, I think about sophisticated supply chains, um, innovation spillovers, um, and, and many other very broad issues. So it raised it raised a kind of very general question in my mind. Let me ask you, is it possible? Can corporate financial stress be prop- propagated through the manufacturing supply chain? Is is there a financial supply chain? More specifically, can balance sheet issues in the auto sector have unexpected spillovers in other manufacturing industry sectors? Well, I think most certainly, right? I mean, you already see some consolidation of operations in the, the auto manufacturing space. And so I think there's certainly a ripple effect there. I would say that the parts manufacturers aren't showing nearly the same level of risk that the auto manufacturers themselves are. But then again, they're a little bit more diversified. Um, And and here I'm also talking not only about parts, but tires, rubber, glass, right? So these are more, um, their end markets are a little bit more agnostic. And thus with this level of diversification, um, it's at least it's showing up in terms of their balance sheet. They're a lot safer than what you would actually see in auto manufacturing itself. Interesting. All right. Let me ask you. And, and I, I can actually dive into this a little bit more. So there, there's actually um, – because this is, this is worth expanding on, right? Um, we do see that the, the, manu- the balance sheet health for auto manufacturers is improving, Right, and you actually see this actually um, a deterioration in the auto parts. But nevertheless, if you look at the absolute level of balance sheet risk, it, it's much greater in the parent sector. But in, within auto manufacturers themselves, we see interest costs as a share of their total cost structure is ballooning. Um, this is very worrisome, right? And so it, it's crowding out other needed investment in order to to kind of bolster competitiveness. And it's happening at an inopportune time when sales for the market are slowing down quite a bit. So, you know, we've had this kind of boom period in auto manufacturing. Um, you know, there's, the, you know, there, there was kind of this, this uh, demand unleashed after the financial crisis, but a lot of that has been satiated. And so that there's this kind of natural cyclical slowdown. And so we had, um, you know, we're, we're seeing this right now. And so I think that, you know, that could certainly impact auto manufacturing balance sheets. Um, so, yes, that's right. There's another interesting facet here, and that's the fact that auto manufacturers are using twice the level of short-term debt uh, the, re- the rest of the manufacturing sector. So manufacturers, uh, I'm speaking you know, very broad here, 17% of the national balance sheet is financed with short-term debt. Auto manufacturers are operating with 34% short-term financing. And so if there is kind of this slowdown in economic fundamentals, and we're already seeing it right now, um, and you, you already see higher interest rate costs, they may have to roll in, over into more expensive short-term debt. And that's a hamster wheel that you don't necessarily want to find yourself on. Now, but by and large, yes, they're, they're, uh, the quick ratio in terms of how they could liquidate quick, you know, current assets to satiate current liabilities all this looks okay at the moment. Um, but I think that there are some more medium-term concerns here 
that, that really stand out. Um, and in terms of the balance sheet fundamentals, they definitely look a lot riskier than the rest of the manufacturing sector. Generally speaking, your broad conclusions notwithstanding, what's keeping you up at night? That is, what is your biggest worry over the next, say, few years in terms of the total non-financial corporate balance sheet picture? And and then tell us what your biggest worry is with regard to the U.S. manufacturing balance sheet. Yeah, I think I could approach this from a few different ways. I mean, there's there's risks all over the place. I mean, there, there's certainly a difference between risk and uncertainty, right? I think people often confuse yeah. the two just because there's yeah. uncertainty. Therefore, there has to automatically be risk. You know, I, I don't buy that. And I think sometimes there's this this kind of um, you know, there's some confusion there. But by and large, if I if I kind of see risks in the non-financial industry. I'm looking at the serial acquisition space, uh, particularly in technologically disruptive areas. You know, I may look at this kind of a, you know, telecom or media space. There's been a lot of buyout activity here, but at the same time, you can look at, say, cord cutting, right? All of a sudden, people don't want to pay expensive, uh, you know, cable bills, and it's moving over to streaming. But, hey, you know, there's high levels of debt that are left over. And so, you know, you see this kind of new business models emerging, and how is that going to reshape the ability to pay debt? Um, that's a very interesting question. It's a million-dollar question. But if I'm looking at manufacturers, right, I'm looking at this high-dollar environment, um, this kind of competitive uh, global devaluation of currencies. So we've seen it with the Chinese. Now we see it with the, the kind of the Europeans. Um, just even reading the, the Wall Street Journal this morning, Japan's talking about even for, further short-term uh, negative rate cuts. So mm-hmm. that's very much of – that would put U.S. manufacturers at a, at a real big disadvantage considering the fact that about – I think it's like 22% of manufacturing production is, is sent abroad in terms of exports. Um, so that, that's a real concern, right, in terms of this kind of competitive devaluation, this beggar-thy-neighbor policies. Um, I think it's also fair to to keep a lookout if economic fundamentals do slow, particularly in resource-intensive areas like China, then all of a sudden you see this kind of slowdown uh, or weaker commodity prices. And generally speaking, I think higher commodity prices are probably better for the U.S. manufacturing industry, especially like industrial equipment in terms of our, our oil and gas industry, mining industry, construction so I think all that is kind of generally um, positive on a, on a net basis. Um, and, and so, you know, th- there's kind of these these kind of concerns, and we touched on the China trade conflict before. Does that result in some sort of import inflation? Uh, but it ultimately depends on if there is kind of a deal there. Do the level of tariffs, you know, outpace the Chinese yuan devaluation, and therefore, you know, there is that import um, cost inflation. Uh, I'm not making an argument one way or another. There, there are some arguments here about kind of, you know, kind of market access and, and technology, intellectual property, but, you know, we do also have to look at this from a credit risk perspective. In a truly global business environment that we're in, I have to ask the competition questions, and that is how do U.S. non-financial balance sheet metrics fair by international comparison, and also what does a global comparison reveal for the U.S. manufacturing balance sheet? 
Yeah, Cliff, I absolutely love this question. And in fact, this is what I really enjoyed researching because there were so many uh, takeaways from this. Um, this is very eye-opening for me. And I, I honestly haven't seen a lot of this research out there. But what, what's interesting is that if, if you look at a global manufacturing spectrum, right, if you take balance sheets and put them on a global distribution, the U.S. is really not too far off the global baseline. However, that you see this very wide distribution in terms of how balance sheets are operated globally. And, um, you know, if we want to look at levels of gearing, then, you know, the Europeans are way high, right? And then, you know, so there's a leverage risk in Europe. But if we look at um, use of short-term debt, then, you know, if we look to Asia, they operate with tremendous amounts of short-term financing. And, so there's, and thus, there's more refinancing risk. And, and thus, you know, the United States is, is kind of in the middle in both regards. Um, so it's really interesting to look at. Um, so let me unpack a few observations here. So in continental Europe, uh, bar none, these guys are the most highly levered, right? Now, the UK is closer to the U.S. profile. Uh, maybe it's because we're Anglo cousins. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a joke. But, um, you know, it, if we look at, say, Italy, Germany, France, is kind of a, is kind of a case studies. Italy is bar none the most levered out of any of the global manufacturers globally, right? So we, we're very well aware of these kind of competitiveness issues in Italy, and thus they're paying a lot higher interest costs as a result. Um, you know, but in terms of leverage, though, Germany and France really aren't too far behind Italy. And once again, here I'm looking at publicly traded companies. Germany's got a lot of private enterprise, you know, their middle sand um, that would not be captured in our analysis. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's very interesting to look at. In terms of uh, interest costs, I want to revert back to this. About 6%, um, let's focus on Italy, 6% of their total cost structure is devoted to interest payments. And, uh, but in Germany and France, it's only a little bit above 1%. So, you know, there, there's this huge discrepancy beside, you know, despite the fact that they're carrying pretty similar levels of debt relative to their balance sheet. You know, so it, it just kind of speaks to these kind of broader concerns in the Eurozone. Um, and the only other country who's paying a similar level of interest out the nose uh, compared to, like, Italy is probably Brazil. Um, so it's interesting to look at those, those markets. So if we look at Germany, um, they're, they're very levered. They've got um, worse debt coverage ratios in the United States, uh, worse quick ratio. Um, and then they're also selling more on credit than their U.S. peers, right? So that's kind of interesting to note. Um, and they use twice as much short-term debt as their American peers. And we also find that their inventory turnover is actually lower than American businesses as well. So about this whole notion of German efficiency, it's not reflected in inventory turnover. That's kind of interesting to know. Um, they, do, they are better in a few different respects. They do have lower interest costs. Despite, despite the fact that they've got more gearing on their balance sheets than American businesses, they're paying lower interest costs. Um, and it gets back to this kind of exceptional monetary uh, policy easing in the Eurozone. So that's, that's kind of interesting to look at. But nevertheless, you do see this kind of storm brewing in Germany is kind of Europe's linchpin economy. They've got 
very high levels of financial risk in Germany's uh, manufacturing industry at a time where exports are collapsing with this kind of China slowdown. And then, uh, you know, manufacturing new orders are slowing down and, and um, add to the fact that their banking sector can't necessarily act as a backstop. And, uh, you know, it's the Landis Bank. I've got a host of problems and you can look at kind of uh, you know, their big national champions and say like a Deutsche Bank or Commerce Bank is kind of having kind of a capitalization problems as well. And, and you see this in terms of these banks are shedding a lot of, or at least, you know, Deutsche Bank is, is shedding a lot of headcount. Um, so it's very interesting. Now, let me quickly pivot over to uh, Japan is kind of another key case study. I'm not going to spend as much time here, but I do find that they're very conservatively run. Uh, financially speaking, they have very low levels of gearing and very low interest expense. They pay almost nothing in terms of interest costs. Um, and their debt coverage is more than adequate. And so, honestly, it kind of begs the question why aren't they using more debt? And, you know, perhaps they should be using more debt to fund uh, share buybacks or to pursue some sort of acquisitions. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. That's a very interesting question to ask, but they are more reliant on short-term financing, as would be more characterized in the Asian environment. But if I had to look at uh, you know, a, a country with perhaps a high level of risk in Asia, you know, I'm looking at Taiwan. You know, 60% of their financing structure is wrapped up in short-term financing, and i.e. 60% of their debt they have to refinance every year. And with kind of this fixed investment slowdown in China and the fact that Taiwan and China are so closely integrated in terms of especially manufacturing, um, you know, I'm kind of looking at uh, Taiwan as kind of a key risk vector. But, hey, you know, their interest costs are cheap and debt coverage looks fine for the moment. But, you know, let, let's keep an eye on this. These last two questions are motivated by the fact that interest rates have been absolutely dominating the business headlines. Let me ask, is there seems to be at least a perceived global race to the bottom with interest rates. Is this global race to the bottom, Mike, creating more short-term risk-taking around the world? Uh, I think it's probably fair to say so, and, and in fact, it's a, it's a moral hazard, right, because you're penalizing responsible savers in favor of debtors and you're also creating temporal distortions in terms of dragging forward uh, demand, right? So you can kind of build up these imbalances that may not necessarily be able to be sustained. We also see banks reaching into riskier areas in both kind of the, the business and, and consumer realms uh, that maybe they wouldn't have ventured into a few years ago, but it gets back to this chase for yield. Um, but Nevertheless, though, I think at least when it comes to the U.S. banking sector, it's more than adequately capitalized at the moment. Um, the U.S. banking sector isn't anywhere near the level of risk that it was leading up to the 2008 crisis. Um, you know, the, the financial risk is probably more in international markets. Um, but, you know, the, the U.S., at least, you know, the financial system looks solid. And I think the banking system, uh, you know, I should say the corporate credit environment looks solid as well to me as well. Final question, Mike. I'd yep. like to get your view on the recent, although interest rates have certainly backed up in recent days, 
I'd like to get your view on the recent general dramatic fall in the um, in bond yields in the U.S. And of course, we've had that inversion, that much noticed inversion in some parts of the yield curve. What does this all signal in your mind about the economic outlook, and what does it mean for corporate balance sheets? Yeah, it's interesting, and it's certainly drawn a lot of market attention. And I would say that, you know, actually, I'll lead off with a joke. Um, there's a popular joke amongst financial economists that an inverted yield curve has predicted nine out of the past five recessions. And then people say to me, wait, it has? Um, and then all of a sudden they, they realize like you can't have not, you know, nine and five, they have a numerator, denominator. Oh, okay. Um, joke, but anyways, dry, dry humor. Right. Um, but, 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 you know, it, it's, uh, I think there's other factors here, right? I mean, it, it's about, um, inflation expectations. It's about, um, certain regulatory requirements, I think, for institutional investors to, to be wrapped up more in, in kind of a federal debt, particularly long-term. So there, there are certain savings preferences amongst investors, particularly those with deep pockets. And thus, I'm not as worried about this because the economic fundamentals, at least in my mind, still look pretty rosy. Um, so if I had to leave with some key takeaways today, I'm still looking at a you know economy that's over 70% consumer driven, and unemployment is below uh, 4%. Wages are rising. You know the 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 Fed has got has built up a countercyclical buffer with interest rates and has room to drop rates, at least short-term rates, if they want. Um, you know we'll we'll continue to see how monetary policy evolves. You know we've got low inflation levels. The banking sector is uh, solid, as I noted before. Um, so things generally look good. And, and the last thing that I'll say is that economic expansion cycles don't necessarily die of old age. Um, you know, as long as you know, as long as people keep making babies and we all keep going to work and businesses keep right. innovating, expanding, there, there's a certain natural rate of growth, right? That's that's contingent not only based off population growth and productivity. Uh, but but really, I don't think the economic expansion cycle has to really die off unless it's acted on by an outside force. And I mean, this could metastasize through several different ways. It could be some sort of uh, you know build up in kind of the debt markets, like what we're, we've been talking about. It could be trade conflict. It could be some monetary policy mistake. Uh, it could be geopolitical in its nature. Um, but all things considered, at the moment, everything, at least in my mind, looks contained and manageable. Um, so I, I leave with more of an optimistic take. Um, but if people are interested in kind of uh, talking more about the research, um, they can certainly uh, reach out to me with questions, comments. I, I certainly, you know, uh, welcome that. So they can reach out to me at Michael Ryan, michael.ryan at ihsmarket.com, and, and always happy to discuss further. Mike Ryan. You gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today. No problem, Cliff. Really glad to be here once again. Thanks, and hope to catch you soon. <laughs> That's it for today, folks. Join us for our next episode, when we'll be looking at the Indian economy and India's role in the global manufacturing picture. Until then... This is Cliff Waldman reminding you that 
manufacturing matters. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.